Hi, I'm Francesca Maxime, and this is Wise Girl, and I am so thrilled to welcome a very special guest who is so generous with his time today. We met at the Psychotherapy Networker Conference uh, about a week and a half ago, and he's the author of a couple of amazing books and a systems uh, way of looking at therapy and uh, holistic well-being that I think is really amazing. Dick Schwartz, uh, PhD, the author of Internal Family Systems, that is the name of the model that we'll be talking about today. And also, uh, Dick is the author of You Are the One That You've Been Waiting For. Uh, forget about whoever's out there. Uh, it's who's inside you that we're also hoping to recover. Welcome, Dick. Thanks so much for joining us today on Wise Girl. Thank you, Francesca. It's great to be with you. It is. Um, it's really amazing, the work that you do. I wanted to talk a little bit about... Um, sort of this idea of therapy as opposed to, uh, you know, sort of the spiritual mindfulness track and how your model, Internal Family Systems, actually pulls from both schools uh, in many ways so that we can use some very tactical, uh, you know, sort of therapeutic interventions, but that we're also looking at something beyond just uh, behavioral change. So can you just talk a little bit about IFS and introduce us to it for those who haven't yet uh, been made aware of it. Okay, uh, I haven't found the perfect elevator speech yet, but I can give it a shot. So uh, many years ago, actually, I'm pretty old, so this goes back about 35 years, my clients started talking about what they called different parts of them. Uh, I was working with eating disorders at the time, and so well, a client would say, when something bad happened in their life, it would trigger this critic who would call me names and then that would bring up another part that could make me feel totally raw and young and empty and desperate. And then that part was so scary that almost to the rescue would come a binging part that would make me eat a lot, but the act of the binge would bring the critic back. And as clients described that, at first I thought, oh my God, they're multiple personality disordered people. but I, when I got over that and realized I've got some of these parts too, and they're as extreme about food as my clients, then I calmed down and I began to, to ask clients to describe more about how they all interacted inside of them. And because I have a background in family therapy, which is I have a PhD in that, I could track the different ways they related inside, inside my clients in the same ways that I was tracking the way families would interact with each other, different family members. <clears throat> and then through kind of trial and error with all of that, learned that these parts aren't what they seem, that in fact, they're all valuable. They all have wonderful resources to lend to us, but they're forced out of their naturally valuable states by traumas, by what we call attachment injuries. I, suspect your audience knows about that, mm -hmm. and are forced into roles to protect us that they don't like, but were necessary when we were young, and that they get frozen back in these young times, not even knowing that we're much older than we were before, and they feel like they still have to protect us in that same way. And then there are the parts of us that got hurt the most by those traumas and attachment injuries that uh, carry what I call 
burdens, which are the extreme beliefs and emotions that came into us from those events and attach to these parts and make them feel terrified or feel ashamed or feel hurt. And once these very vulnerable young childlike parts of us get hurt, we tend to lock them away inside. So they become what I call exiles. And because we think we don't want to be around those emotions or thoughts or beliefs that now they carry. And not knowing that we're locking up our most precious juice by, by doing that. And when you get a lot of exiles, you need a lot of protectors because now you become more vulnerable. The world can trigger you. If you get an exile triggered, it can pull you back into those horrible scenes. So you need more, more parts to form these protective roles. And so that's the way I view these internal systems that we all have. We all have exiles, we all have protectors. <clears throat> and just again, through trial and error back in the day, I found there was somebody else inside of my clients who knew how to heal these parts, knew how to relate to them in a healing way and could become a kind of good attachment figure in uh, the sense of attachment theory where, you know, hopefully your caretaker, your parent treated you in a, in a healthy way, which allowed you to form a good attachment. Well, there is a kind of wisdom within us about how to do that for ourselves or for these parts that as these, what I call parts, open space and relax a little bit, which meditation has a way of doing. What's called the ego is just a bunch of these manager parts who are trying their best to keep us safe. And when they relax, we can feel this sense of well-being, a sense of being present in our bodies, and a sense of acceptance that characterizes mindfulness meditation. So by getting these parts to open space this way, we enter this other state that I call the self with a capital S and to distinguish it between the most common use of the word self to describe the whole person. Self is a kind of uh, allergic word in the Buddhist communities. They like the word no self, but we're really talking about the same thing, this emptiness that's so full that exists when parts relax. So I found that that, same place that I call self cannot be damaged, exists in everyone, and can be accessed that simple way by encouraging parts to let it emerge. And when it emerges, it, it emerges almost like the same person in all of us. So we have, at some point I decided to kind of categorize or catalog the, the qualities that would emerge when people entered that self state. So we we have calm, confident, curious, uh, courage, courageous, you've got a probably listed there, compassion, uh, creativity, uh, clarity, and connectedness. So that turns out to be who we really are. It's really a case of mistaken identity. We, we identify with these parts and their burdens and their, their extreme beliefs and feelings and thinks that's who we are. But it turns out that they 
aren't who we really are, that this essence is in there and can be accessed through meditation, but also in this, this other kind of releasing way. So I went on for a while, so. No, no, I love that. And I love the fact that um, it's very clear that there is a holding and a respect for all of the different parts. Mm -hmm. And there's also sort of this uh, groundwork. I call it like the, the, it's sort of like the rebar in the concrete underneath the building, right? Mm -hmm. Like the parts might be, you know, the windows and the doors and the, and the, you know, whatever it is, but the underneath it all, the thing that's really supporting it all. And that's really holding us up and that's our inner dignity, our Buddha nature, our true nature, our mm -hmm. basic goodness, whatever verbiage, some people just call it presence or God. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. could be religious language, it could be secular language, it could be therapeutic language, you call it the self with a capital S, which is, which is also great, that we're recognizing and holding accountable these um, conditioned behaviors that mm -hmm. you know very much are uh, adaptive behaviors from whatever it was that we may not have adequately received when we were younger that we needed um, and that we're also saying, but we have the opportunity to heal. So I love it. Um, my thing is about this is that a lot of people I have found uh, a are very, I have a very difficult time separating out parts or patterns from the self. They merge and they identify Mm -hmm. as the part mm -hmm. can you talk about i like to talk about applied mindfulness so can we mm -hmm. talk about how this shows up in real life when you're for example not you but anyone is having an argument with their friend or their boss or their wife or husband or something like that when they know that they're actually speaking from a part versus from their deeper self yeah do you want to role play that francesca do you want to well, we can sure be such a person who comes to me asking for help yeah, I mean, I just, you know, Dick, I am having such a hard time. My, my boyfriend is, um, I don't know, he's not responding to my texts and my calls, and I'm getting really frustrated. And so I just finally gave in, and I fired off a text the other day, and I just said, listen, if you don't want to be with me, then just, like, forget about it. I'm out. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how can I help you with that? What, what would be useful to you? Do you, well, so the, do you want to get to know the part of you that fired off that email? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, we're doing a role play. That was just a role play. I don't have no, no, I, I know, I know. <laughs> stay, stay with the role play. Okay. Okay. So um, um, do I want to get to know that part of me? I don't know. I feel like I, I always find myself in this kind of a situation with these kind okay. of people. And this is something that I keep doing and I, and I don't know how not to do it, but yeah. I Feel like he deserves it because he didn't he's been ignoring me i get that so in terms of what you typically see in, in your pattern it'll get to a point where you'll you'll say i'm out of here or, or you've you've got to do something or else something like that yeah i just get so frustrated i feel like it's hopeless and i just want to give up yeah okay so there's one part of you that wants to just give up and not even try with boy with boyfriends anymore. And then there's other part of you that gets furious when they do something like you described and, and tries to protect you by getting them to behave. Does that sound right? Yeah. I mean, there's like, I have rights too, you know, like, uh -huh. that's yeah. what that part says, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then is there another part of you that gets very hurt by these things that they do? Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, there's a part of me that just 
it reminds me of the past when I've had relationships that have gone south that I feel really bad about and mm -hmm. I feel like I get stuck there and you know I won't be able to move on okay so there's a part that becomes critical of you and thinks there may be something wrong with you yeah about this. I, I think that you know unless I figure this out maybe I'll never be able to be have a relationship yeah yeah or have a happy one uh -huh. okay all right, so we could step out for a second. So, you know, in a, just a couple minutes, we've identified three or four different parts of you okay. that are involved in this pattern. And at some point, I would just say, is there one of those you'd like to start with? We can actually change all of this if you're interested. <clears throat> and so uh, you might pick the one that, that gets so angry, or you might pick the one that's so despairing and feels hopeless, or. Uh, and then I would just have you focus on it. Do you want to role play that piece of it? Um, sure, we can try. Um, okay. Let's see. How about the one that feels like hopeless? Like yeah. I feel like, you know, this just back and role play role. Um, yeah. Yeah, like I'm just not good enough or nobody's going to like me or yeah. yeah. going to be a problem. And I don't know what's wrong with me. Yeah. Okay. So you'd like to maybe help that part that feels that way. Is that right? Yeah. All right. So focus on that one exclusively for a second inside and see where you find it in your body or around your body, just as you notice it. So like where in my body am I feeling it? Like my, like my belly kind of. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. That's my, right. My lower abdomen. Yeah. So focus right there on your belly, your lower abdomen. And as you notice that one who thinks maybe there's something wrong with you, how do you feel toward it as you see it there, as you notice it there? How do you like or dislike this part of you? Well, there's a part of me that thinks that she's crazy uh -huh. because I don't think that there's anything wrong. But then right. there's another part of me that says, well, there has to be because this hasn't worked out. It's not working, yeah, right. Okay, so we're gonna ask both of those. They, they each have valid things to say, but we're gonna ask both those parts to give us just a little bit of space so we can get to know this one in your belly. We're not gonna, and we might even be able to help it feel better. But to do that, we need to get you in a different place. So just see if these other parts would, would relax just a little bit back inside there. So we're asking these parts of mine to just sort of take a step back, like a few feet or a yard or so, just to- Perfect, that's exactly right. Okay. Okay, and then focus again on the one in your, in your gut. Mm -hmm. And tell me how you feel toward it now. Yeah, there's a little more space. There's not so much connection and fusion between the two. Good, and how do you feel toward it as you notice the space? I have a little more compassion for it. Okay, so could you let it know that inside? Just let it know you care about it and you're, you're sorry that it's hurting and just see how it reacts to your compassion. Yeah, it's like sort of telling me that it wants me to rescue it from this place. Yeah, so tell it we're gonna do that. So I'm here to rescue you. That's right, exactly. <laughs> from this place. That's exactly right. Okay. 
Let's see how it reacts. Finally, it's. <laughs> <laughs> and do you do you see it in there, or you just sense it down there? You have an image for it. Uh, oh yeah, she's like five. Okay. Okay, good. So let her know. You see that she's like a five-year-old girl who's been hurt. Mm-hmm. And. Do you have a sense of how close you are to her in there? Uh, yeah, we're like standing next to each other. She's kind of like next to me holding hands. Okay. Now, do you see yourself holding her hand or are you, are you there doing it? Uh, you mean like an image in my mind's eye? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I don't want you to see yourself. I actually want whatever part is trying to do it for you to give us some space too. So okay. you're, you're there. You see the little girl. But just like if she were in your, in your room right now, you mm-hmm. wouldn't see yourself. You'd be with her. See if that can happen. Hmm. So this isn't an image. This isn't a visualization. This is me actually being with her. Yeah, you might see her, but you don't see yourself. Aha. So who is the me that's with her? Good question. <laughs> but just try it. Just see what happens. Uh-huh. It's the observer who's been observing. I want that person to be there with her. Right. Yes, the one that can see. The you. Mm-hmm. The you. I just want you to be there. Okay. With her. And tell me when you're there. Yeah, I think that's fair. I could say so, that I'm there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how's she reacting to you being with her? The the five year old. The five year old? Yeah, she's she's like, yeah, that's cool. Okay. Good. And just see what she wants you to know about herself right now as you're with her. Whatever she and don't think of the answer, just wait for an answer to come from her. She just says, listen, I've needed your help for a long time and thank you for paying attention to me because uh, I've been trying to get your attention for a long time and um, yeah, you're here. Finally, okay. you're ignoring me. All right, fantastic. All right, so we can step out again if you want, Francesca, or we could keep going. Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so, uh, so that was a good example of a fairly quick process where you're not just become, being mindful of your thoughts and emotions and from a kind of observing place. You're actually going to them and in an active way becoming a good inner parent or good leader of this inner system. And actually that kind of compassion helps these parts heal. They, we could, if, if we stayed with it, we could actually help that little five-year-old unload the feelings and beliefs she carries from whatever happened to her in the past. We would first have to witness what happened to her. You would. I wouldn't have to necessarily. And how bad it was. And then we'd get her out of where she's stuck back there. And then we would help her unload the feelings and beliefs she's been carrying all these years. That's interesting. Like, you know, from journalist, like I'm back on my journalist hat now, from the perspective of... um of sort of this unburdening that you talked about earlier that you're referring to now, I think, in terms of the five-year-old. I think a lot of people 
are resistant to therapy in general, whether it's your method or any method for that matter, because they are afraid to go there. And yet what I've continued, meaning doing the deeper work, yeah. what I've continued to hear from folks is at some point, it kind of, you do have to go there if you want to actually get to the radical, the root of the healing. And that healing is possible. Our brains are plastic. Our body can learn new habits. But what I hear different from your method that's different from you know, cognitive behavioral therapy or something like that is that you're holding yourself with the larger S self of you right. that is in some ways beyond just you. It's the wiser, mm-hmm. deeper knowing of mm-hmm. you, but that's, that's right. there's some larger energy that you're connecting to as well. That's right. Can you talk about how that that play, I mean, we just did it a little bit, but how that might be a way to invite more people into trying to try therapy when they otherwise might be just terrified that it's just a black hole that's going to suck them down and they'll never come out. Yeah. So a lot of people are terrified of going to their exiles, what I call their exiles, which would be that five-year-old girl you, you were with for good, for good reasons. They have good reasons to be afraid because in the past, whenever the door was opened somehow, whenever those exiles got triggered and, and burst forward, it was like flames of emotions totally overwhelmed them and they thought they were gonna die and they couldn't get out of bed for a week or it really interfered with their ability to function. So they have these protectors who said, I'm not opening that door again. And you can totally empathize with why they wouldn't wanna do that. So to convince someone to do that, we have to come with saying, we can open that door without any of that happening to you. And we're not doing it just to grovel in what's in there. We're, we're not doing that to make you a victim. We're doing it to go in and get the parts you left back there out of there and help them unload these feelings and beliefs they've been carrying all this time. And we can do that without you being overwhelmed by it. And I know how to do it. I know how to do it very clearly, safely. I could describe how we would do it in advance. So it would be a totally educated decision. And I still get it be very, very scary to do. But it's a lot less scary when, first of all, uh, I don't even need, need to know what's in there. I don't, you don't have to tell me what you see when you open that door. It's for you to get. And there is this person in you that I call yourself who can do all of this that I'm describing that you don't even know yet. You don't even know you have. And I I would help you access that person who would be the one to go in. And like we found, there are parts who want to do it for you, which is the one who was holding your hand at first. Uh But that, that part is not nearly as effective as yourself when you finally went in to do it. So, uh, so that's my pitch to people. And if, if their protectors can believe half of what I just said, they're much more interested in trying it than if they think that they're going to have to do this deep dive uh, for which they may never return. Yeah, I think that that's really a critical point because I feel like a lot of folks who are uh, – trying to heal. I think that there's basically two things that we can do. We can address symptoms or we can address the problem itself. And the problem itself is not you 
right? It's never the self. The self is problem free. Right. Behavior can be problematic. The conditioning, the habits. The or, or again, I, I. Part of why I am a kind of crusader for the parts language, is because if you think of it as a conditioning, conditioned behavior pattern or thought pattern it doesn't open the door so much to relate to it with compassion mm. than if you thought of it as a little girl or you thought of it as some part of you that's suffering and is extreme because it's, it was forced to do this job. So uh, I'm a kind of crusader for the personhood of these inner entities because that translates into a much more compassionate way of relating to yourself inside. Totally. I, you know, I, I respect that. And I appreciate you pointing that out in terms of a way that we can continue to look at things that are little people inside that may or may not be working mm -hmm. uh, on our best behalf at the moment, but mm -hmm. who deserve our respect because they in fact very much did do their job when it was required. Absolutely. And, and, and are still, and are still doing it. Um, so, Let's talk a little bit about um, how this would work in terms of, uh, we, we saw how it would work in like a therapeutic setting when, you know, I'm sitting with you. Mm -hmm. How can someone take this kind of a model in their day-to-day -day life? Yeah. If, you know, at work, I'm having a problem with my boss. I think that he doesn't like my latest report. I'm worried about my job. A part of me is getting triggered that may say I'm not, you know, good enough, which seems to be the... Mm -hmm. Mo greatest affliction of most folks that I've met anyway. Yeah. yeah. So um, as you get to know these parts and begin to change your relationship with them. So, you know, when you first focused on that, uh, that five-year-old turned out to be a five-year-old and I asked you how you felt toward it, you know, you had parts that had different feelings, but those feelings and the ways of relating to it get in the way. So if I can, initially gets you, and it doesn't have to be in therapy, but just even from reading about it or something, to begin to see the critic rather than as an arch enemy, which most people do see it as, and instead see it as a part that's desperately trying to keep you safe and will criticize you to try and make you behave better or look better or perform better or to try and run your confidence down so you don't take any risks. Then, before you go to meet with your boss, you go to that part and you say, I get you're trying to protect me. And I get that you think the way to do it is to make me feel bad or prepare me for the, for the you know, disappointment or something like that. But um, I really don't need that right now because... Uh, I'm not a little kid anymore. I can actually handle much more than I could back when you really needed to do this for me. And would you give me a little space so I can be there and I can be in my body when I interact with him? And, you know, many cases, people will feel this palpable shift and they'll feel immediately much more grounded and, and they'll be able to function from this open-hearted, but, you know, strong place that I call cell. Right, right. So, go ahead. Well, I was going to say two things about that. One is, I think a lot of people carry around a lot of resentment and anger toward their offenders, whoever they are, whether they're parents or early caregivers or, you know, 
anyone who has uh, either neglected them or abused them or in any way, shape or form not met their needs when they needed them and were helpless. And there's still an element of wanting that person, whoever that was, whether they're alive or dead, doesn't matter, to right. one to fix it. And That's oftentimes right. when that doesn't happen, they then will ask their spouse That's right. or their friend circle to be the ones to fix it. What I hear you saying is this is about personal responsibility in terms of knowing that you have this deeper and greater capacity within you. But I also feel like that there's a shift there because somebody's going to have to be willing to give up the wish that someone else is going to do it. That's true. That one of the books you held up, You're the One, is all about that shift. And it is true. Many of us make our mate selection choices based on this idea that finally here's this person who can take care of my exile. They can make me feel good about myself. They can make me feel protected and safe. This person's going to do it for me. And so uh, these young parts of us attach to that person as their, as their caretaker or attachment figure. And the problem with that approach is that that person is going to hurt us at some point, even inadvertently, and can't be that caretaker for those exiles in the way that they want. And so when that happens, our protectors come in in a big way and say, oh, my God, we've got to get them to change back. And they, they'll either attack or try to cajole, somehow get that person to become the redeemer they were supposed to be. And when that doesn't work, they think, well, maybe if I change, maybe if I lose weight or I stop nagging or something, then I'll change. And if that doesn't work, oh, my God, this wasn't really the real redeemer. There's, that person's still out there somewhere. And they'll go look for the, for the real Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. And then when that doesn't work, a lot of people just give up on, you know, like the woman you were role-playing had a voice saying, you know, maybe I'm doomed, so maybe I should just go to work or focus on some drug or something to get me through life. So that's, what, that's the bind most of us are in, not knowing that we can become what I call the primary caretaker to our own parts, to our own exiles, which frees our partner up to be the secondary caretaker of them. And most of us have it reversed. We want our partner to be the primary caretaker and and we don't know how to take care of these parts of us so that's a lot of what we try to help people do is learn that they can take care of these exiles who are so needy and and raw which then allows the partner to be freed up the partner doesn't have to be in this rigid box all the time and they the partner can the partner feels the relief of that so, and, and from my point of view, too many therapies, for example, are based from attachment theory on this idea that your partner should become that, that caretaker. Yeah, I've, I've also been aware of um, some therapists that I really respect and whose work I admire at many levels, but also is rooted in kind of uh, this other person containing the container of safety. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it is a balance, right, in terms of life, in terms of interdependence, autonomy, mm -hmm. wanting to connect and be able to, you know, merge without enmeshment. I mean, this is mm -hmm. the dance of life. You know, you yeah. come together, you come apart. 
And so um, there's our relative self, there's our spiritual self, you know, that there, that there really are uh, sort of fluctuations and waves uh, to the ways in which we interact with life. And so to that end, you know, to somebody who says, well, that's nice. Okay. I can imagine coming from a more grounded place. I can imagine, yes, I can recall times when I've been clear headed and felt myself or felt mm -hmm. grounded. Like I'm not pulled, pulled apart by my parts, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but can I stay in self 100% of the time? Is it possible? Is it something that I can only dip into from time to time when I do all of this really mindful attention to, to these parts? Yeah. Um, I haven't run into a person who can stay in self all the time, including myself. <laughs> but I can do it a whole lot more than I could before, before I knew about my parts and related to them this way. And I can do it almost in every context, uh, except when I fight with my wife, <laughs> when there are certain parts that still come up. And again, in terms of making repairs and, and reconnecting after something like that, uh, I'm much better at it because when she's so furious with me, I don't say to myself, oh my God, we're gonna split up. I say, okay, here's this angry part of her she still loves me. It's just a part. It's not all of her, even though it's saying these mean things. And I know she's going to do her work, so it's not going to be there forever. And I'm going to work with the parts of me that get so hurt by it so that I don't have to react in such a protective way. And that creates a very different kind of exchange. Well, I love that because it leaves so much room for the humanity of the way that we live. And like you say, the compassion for the parts, you know, in the Buddhist um, sort of uh, philosophy, they talk about Mara or the shadow side or whatever mm -hmm. it is that's also a part of us, that the light mm -hmm. does not exist without the darkness, right? That right. Sort of both parts of the same uh, coin, so to speak, but that it's how we relate to them. So what I hear you saying is we're learning to relate to these parts of ourselves differently, knowing that we're girded by, as I said earlier, this rebar, if you will, of self mm -hmm. that is um, really sort of where we can drop into, provided that we have the awareness that we're caught speaking, not as you say, for a part, but from a part. Yes. Yeah. So that's the, that was a very nice description of what I'm trying to bring. So and that concept, that idea of speaking for your parts rather than from your parts is central to working with couples or, or being in a couple because it's very different if I were to say to you, Francesca, you know, I, I hate the way you just said that. That would be coming from one of my parts. So, but if I instead took a second and listened inside and said, you know, when I don't mean what you just said, but hypothetically. Sure. What you just said triggered this pretty raw part of me. And then I felt this surge from this angry part. And I just want you to know that it had that reaction. And I said it in this tone of voice and with this kind of uh, energy. It's a very different message than I hate the way you just said that. So the idea of being able to speak self to self, even in conflict, is a big part of this work. And we're training people in, who do international conflict resolution, actually, to, 
to do this process or mediators and so on. I love that. Um, the world needs more of it for sure, because we continue to, I think, have folks who are speaking from parts. Yes. <laughs> Making really big decisions yes. all the time. And, uh, Not to mention any names, particularly. <clears throat> I wouldn't do that. Right. Um, but, but, I, but, I, but I do think that's true. And, and yet, along those lines, there's something that keeps people from wanting to uh, look at these things and, and be compassionate toward themselves. And oftentimes, uh, it is a quality of, uh, you know, go forth and conquer that gets people to leadership positions. Yeah. It's that hyper autonomy, that sort of false sense of bravado. And so in terms of like, you know, not to skip way ahead, but like healing in terms of the world, in terms mm -hmm. of sort of the shift that we could make from a more, I don't know, you could call it a patriarchal culture, you could call it a, a non-connected or a subjugative, you know, kind of a model. I don't know, you could call it anything. But how are we doing like how does when we heal ourselves how do you think that sort of is the drop in the bucket if you will for healing this larger context of yeah you know i'm convinced that the the big goal is to bring more self to this planet in general and that if we can do that individually that's great but we could also do it culturally if we could unburden some basic extreme beliefs and emotions our culture carries and our planet carries. And were you at Tony Robbins thing at the networker? No, I was in a different seminar. Oh yeah. So he's a prime example of what we have to unburden because his whole message is don't worry about the past. Don't worry about these weak emotions. You can do it through willpower. And it's a very exiling message. And, and that's, very in sync with our culture. This is a rugged individualist culture that said, just let it go, don't look back, just move on. But that message itself creates a lot of both exiling in terms of people in our, in our country, but also emotions that are vulnerable inside of ourselves. And so if we could, that's one of my goals, is just to counter that uh, approach to life that's such a, an American sort of tragedy. It's, I agree with you. And, um, and yeah, I chose not to go to that, even though I know he's very popular because there was another, um, you know, sort of seminar that I felt was uh, more beneficial to what it is that I'm trying to bring more insight into in the world that happened to be on childhood sexual abuse and incest, mm -hmm. which gets me to my next question um, mm -hmm. about your work is that uh, this method uh, along with eating disorders and with really just about anything, but mm -hmm. uh, it's particularly effective with uh, trauma and childhood sexual abuse, I believe. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about why this works well with folks who have experienced those kind of traumatic uh, stories? Well, partly in, in part because of some of what we already talked about, which is that we can, so most survivors of abuse of different kinds have lots of exiles because that's the way they survived. They had to lock away the parts of them that are still living back in the abuse scenes. And they have, part, they have protectors who don't want to go anywhere near that, and understandably. And so I had to learn ways to honor these protectors for their service, like you would the military, 
but also come with a kind of sales pitch that if they were willing to let us go to the vulnerable parts that they protect, we could heal those parts so then the protectors would be freed up. They wouldn't have to do these extreme things anymore. Mm -hmm. They could do something they'd much prefer inside of the client. And we could do all of that without them being overwhelmed, without the system being overwhelmed by the exile's feelings and so on. So, and, and they're the boss. If they don't want us to do it, we won't do it. They're totally in charge. But because all of these parts that other systems see, the, see as symptoms, like dissociation or panic attack or whatever uh, with, with trauma survivors, suicidality, all of these things that are thought to be pathological psychological processes are really the active activities of protective parts. So we don't get scared of them. And we don't worry about the window of tolerance and all that stuff. We just go to them and negotiate in this way. So if I was working with you and you suddenly became dissociated, I wouldn't try to ground you. I wouldn't say, look in my eyes and take some deep breaths. Because the message that gives to that part that wants to take you out right now is, you, don't, you can't do that. You shouldn't be doing that. You're not. You don't have a right to... to exactly, yeah. Uh, so instead, I would say, Francesca, let me talk to the part that just took you out. And I would let it speak through your mouth. And I would say, okay, so why did you come in right now? And the part would tell us how you were getting too close to some emotion that it thought would be bad, so it took you away. I said, oh, okay, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that we had done that. I'm going to be more careful in the future. Would you let her come back? And boom, you'd be grounded again. So it's, it's a different paradigm for understanding all these things and working with them. Right. Well, it's very compassionate, as you say, in terms of being gentle with the, uh, being very observant in terms of what's happening with your clients, but also being very gentle in the way in which it's an invitation. And it's mm -hmm. also your, you know, I hear, I hear you say, and I've heard you said it before, that we're asking our parts permission mm -hmm. to be accessing these other um, more challenging aspects of ourselves, mm -hmm. but that we're bowing, if you will, mm -hmm. to the mm -hmm. fact that there is a reason why they're acting right. in the way that they are and that we're just mm -hmm. understanding the reason why so that we can then say, oh, okay, and mm -hmm. then come back in with That's a little, right. uh, prefrontal cortex, you know, kind of mm -hmm. activity, if you will. Mm -hmm. Along those lines, can you talk about how this shows up somatically for people? Because a lot of what uh, I've sort of come to understand about well-being is not just shoulders up, that we can understand a lot, but that much of it has to do with heart, head, gut, mm -hmm. and this feeling, intuition, and also just this sense of well-being in our own mm -hmm. body that we can you know, have a right to take up space and be here on the planet as opposed to shirk away or fight everybody off. Yeah, well, if we're staying in the realm of survivors, so most people who've had those terrible experiences as kids, their parts don't want them to be in their bodies and they have ways of keeping them out of their bodies. And so this is one of the concerns I have about some practices that try to embody right away without permission from these protectors. So, uh, example, we just worked with somebody's dissociating whenever they get close to a certain feeling. 
my approach would be let's get to know this part and why it's doing that and honor it and then negotiate permission to let you be in your body and then when it gives you permission you feel much more fully embodied and again similarly there are parts that keep you up in your head because they're afraid of these emotions that live in your body so rather than trying to do practices that make you come into your body i'm finding those parts finding out what their fears are negotiating and then suddenly you're embodied and you live much more from a heart place so that's my it's one of my big beefs with certain therapies and spiritual practices that see embodiment as a big which it is embodiment is really important but actively trying to get people embodied will work for some people but there's a percentage particularly survivors who will have big backlash reactions to that i was on a panel not too long ago with the dalai lama uh the mind and life conference mm-hmm. and a woman named um tanya singer was part of the panel who's done all this research on uh meditators and compassion she's a big researcher on compassion and she's done a study they had three conditions one was mbsr basically and one was uh ala chris germer and kristen neff self compassion practice mm-hmm. and then the third was uh parts based uh, based on my work condition that and they had like 90 measures for each of these and it's it's amazing amount of data is coming out on it but on that panel she said she was interested to find that over 30% of the people who tried the self compassion couldn't do it and some of them dropped out and they just couldn't do it and my belief is and what i said then is it's likely that those people are trauma survivors and so to open your heart through practices is scary to parts and they're not going to let it happen until they believe it's safe to let you open your heart and uh i don't believe that buddhism has a good way of working with trauma so uh of course that made headlines in the buddhist newspaper so so anyway that's my critique about uh practices that actively try and again they'll work for a, a lot of people but uh it's not respectful to the parts that don't want to let people embody again until they know it's absolutely safe to do so right well i mean there's a there's an adage even in in regular speak you know it's it's it never hurts to ask right yeah. So like in a way if that was also incorporated into whatever the protocols even existing protocols that don't include your overall model yeah uh, that would that would be one intervention that one could make overall absolutely that's right that would be a very minor but perhaps very effective intervention in a lot a lot of uh, EMDR practitioners are now before they do any of this saying let's just see if there are parts that don't want to go in there and let's be and get permission to do this before they do it and they, they find they have far less backlash they have far better results it's fascinating because again we're working with um you know the these neurological wirings and a body that's been uh used to doing things in a certain way for safety mm-hmm. and uh in order to sort of start to unlock that and decalcify that um mm-hmm. you know it like you say to open the heart it takes a little bit uh, a little bit more i want to talk about addiction really briefly mm-hmm. um how does that show up with this practice whether it's drugging drugging drinking eating uh sexing gambling what you name it um yeah. 
how, who would they fall into in terms of exiles, managers, protectors, mm -hmm. and, and how do we talk to those parts of us that are engaging in behavior that we know isn't really helpful, but we can't really help it? Yeah, so addiction is usually a three-part phenomena. So there's the critic who says you're a shit, and then there's a part who believes it, who thinks you're, you're bad, it would be an exile. It carries a lot of, uh, you know, sense of worthlessness or insignificance or neglect and abuse. And then there's the part that tries to get you away from any of those feelings. When the exile comes up, then this part has to immediately go into action to get you higher than those flames of emotion till they burn themselves out. So addiction is usually what we call a firefighter. It's fighting those exiles' flames of emotion. <clears throat> and that would be the third part in this triangle. And too many systems say, just say no. Not knowing that, first of all, this part cannot not react. It thinks you're gonna die if it doesn't get you out of that fire. And that every time you fail, brings more worthlessness to the exile and more ammunition for the critic. And every time the message comes to you that you should be able to do this, the critic gets on you even stronger, which brings more shame to the exile, which makes the, the firefighter's job that much harder. And some systems can succeed in getting the critical manager part to sit on the firefighter in addition to the exile but then you turn into a dry drunk and you're addicted to the meetings and to the, the system. Uh, what we try to do is first go to the critic because unless you can get it off the client's back, you're not going to get anywhere. And we work with it to see that it's approached while we get it's trying to help is really backfire. And then we go to the firefighter, to the addiction part and let it know we get how much it's trying to help here and how much it absolutely believes it has to do this. But would it give us permission to go to the exile that it's protecting so we can heal that? And what would it like to do if it didn't have to do this addiction thing all the time? And you'll be amazed at the answer to that. And so we go heal the exile, we come back, and now the addict part is wanting to do something entirely different. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's our approach. It's very much in line with, I don't know if you know Gabor Mate's work or. Yes, you know. I do. Yeah. And, and I, and I think it's very valuable because in my own sort of experience and studying addiction and looking at it, it's really more like, how does this serve? What is the purpose behind it? It's doing something that, you know, it, it, it's looking to do something. It's. it's okay. But. Even that just to, if you don't mind my. Uh, no, it's a okay. ahead. <laughs> Because when you say to somebody, what is your addiction serving you? How is your addiction? The, the implicit message is you, Francesca, are getting something out of this. If you give a different message, yeah, there's a part of you that does this. It's got its reason for doing it. The reason is protective. It's trying to keep you away from these other feelings. It's a different message about you. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, it's not, it's not all of me that is the addict. That's why I don't like labeling like that. You know, right. he's not an addict. There may right. be a part that is, like you say, you know, uh, in, engaging in a certain behavior for 
reasons that you would discover if you were to ask it why exactly. why right. it's doing these things, you know, right. which, which really cuts to the core of my thing. I think, you know, and we'll close uh, shortly because it's uh, our time is almost up. But the, the thing is, is I think a lot of people say they want to be well or say they want to be happier or say they want things to be easier. And I also think that a lot of folks aren't really all that sold on the fact that they think it's possible. Sure, that's right. And don't have a felt experience of what it would be like mm-hmm. to live with more freedom and ease. Mm-hmm. And that it's not a state that we get to that's fixed or static, but more this sort of conversation that's really ongoing that we're mm-hmm. having with ourselves, where, as you said, things may be mitigated to that language. I don't know if you would use that, but they may lessen over time in terms of the, 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 the volume of some mm-hmm. of our parts' voices, mm-hmm. like you said, you and your wife or something, you know, mm-hmm. but that they may be there, but that's okay because we have cultivated an ability to tap into this deeper self with the capital S that you say. Well, uh, <laughs> this is a debate I have with a lot of uh, meditators. So, that's sort of the position that a lot of the spiritual community takes and the mindfulness community takes. Uh, Tara Brock, you know, just uh, kind of learn to live with and be accepting of. And actually that is a big step and it helps loosen things up a lot. And if you take the next step and actually go to these parts rather than just observing them and heal them in the way I've described, they will transform and you won't have these voices. They totally change. So I'm a, <laughs> I'm a advocate of, of total transformation and, and it's possible and it's not that hard. I mean, it's hard. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do to go to these places, but the actual process uh, isn't as hard as we have thought. I love that. And I love the fact that um, in fact, you know, to go back to this sort of spiritual language for a minute, I remember when I was through my journey, and I'm of course still journeying, but um, that my fundamental pivot point was understanding that there's nothing wrong with you. Mm-hmm. That's right. And really getting that. Yeah. And then knowing that that was something that was there underneath everything, and that the other stuff I could work with or learn about. And- and there are parts that aren't on board with that. They do still think there's something wrong with you that you need to go to and, and help them uh, heal. So, and that's true for me too, that I'm still working with. But right. I, can, I can honestly say to you, I used to have a brutal inner critic and that part is now just a cheerleader. I never, criti- I never feel critical of myself. So just that's- in terms of your comparison, all of that is possible. And would that be sort of, if you will, enlightenment in a certain way? I mean, I mean, what more, what more could enlightenment be <laughs> not being the own monkey on your own back all the time and then having an open heart? Well, for me, what everybody has called enlightenment is really just this shift in identity from our parts and their burdens to the self. That's what every spiritual tradition has thought of as enlightenment, knowing that this is who we really are. And it's, it's right there. It's just beneath the surface. So. And, and that is where we will leave it. We will leave it with the self. Um, mm-hmm. I love that. I love the work that you do. I know a lot of other folks that um, 
I respect and uh, work with and have talked to also. Uh, Dick Schwartz, PhD, Internal Family Systems is the book, number one. Uh, you are the one that you've been waiting for. Again, book number two, dealing a little bit more with relationships. Dick, is there anything else that you'd like to say before we close today? Just uh, those books and a lot of others uh, material are on our website, which is selfleadership.org. Again, selfleadership.org. And uh, that's all. So great talking to you, Francesca. Yeah, amazing to talk to you too as well. I hope this has helped some folks. I know that your work has and you have a network of uh, IFS, internal, fam internal Family Systems trained folks all across the mm -hmm. country and around the world uh, that's also available on the website. So mm -hmm. thank you so much, Dick, for being with us today on Wise Girl. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.